Welcome to another episode of the M121 Podcast. I'm Josh Coker, and today we're going to start what I'm calling our summer sermon series with a few sermons that I've enjoyed in the past that have encouraged me or motivated me. And today we're going to start with one from Pastor Ronald Lawrence, who is pastor of the Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Goodlitzville, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. If you're in the area, I encourage you to go visit them. They meet Sundays at 10.30 a.m., And their website is BethelPB.org. In this sermon, Brother Ronald asked the question, what kind of church would my church be if every member were a member like me? I hope you'll take the time to listen, and I hope it will be a blessing. Until next time, God bless you all. If every member of Bethel Church was a member like me, what kind of church would Bethel be? If every member of the church was a church like me, what kind of church would we have? Have you ever given thought to something like that? If every member of the church was a member just like me, what kind of church would we have? If every member of Bethel Church was a member like me, what kind of church would Bethel be? I think it's an interesting question. Now, if you're out there and you're not a member of the church, but you have spiritual interest and have some thoughts about uniting in the church, of course, it's kind of hard for you to answer that one. But if every member of the church was a member like you and you're not a member, it wouldn't be a church for you to be even considering joining. So I want you to think about that a little bit. Is the church important? If so, how important? Is the church something that was just started by a man or some group of men sometime in the past in history of man? Well, actually, the answer to that is yes and no. Because there have been many men who have started their own churches down through the ages. But I'm talking about the Lord's church. I'm talking about the church that was set up by the Lord Jesus Christ during his personal life and ministry. The word church first appears in Matthew 16, 18, when the Lord said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That tells me that the church of the Lord was built by the Lord, and it belongs to the Lord. Ephesians 1, 22, the last verse of that first chapter, says, Now the Lord hath given unto him all things he put under his feet, that he might be the head of the church, his own body. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of his church. He's the builder of his church. 1 Corinthians 3, 8, and 9, Paul says, By the grace of God, excuse me, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, another man buildeth thereupon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for no foundation can any man lay that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. No foundation can be laid that would be profitable. That would be prosperous, that would be glorifying to the Lord other than the foundation of the person and work and life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word church comes the Greek word ecclesia. It means a called out assembly. There are some verses in God's word that has reference to the triumphant church, that is the invisible triumphant church. That is all the family of Christ that God gave to Christ before the foundation of the world that will be with God in glory someday. 
But the word church also has reference to the called out from God's written word in the gospel, a call that God's people receive in this way that calls them to come out from among the world and be a separate people and to unite with others like precious faith that make up the church. The church is not wood and brick and stone and mortar. The church is a group of people, baptized believers, Baptized believers. The church is not made up of unbelievers, but baptized believers. We believe in credo baptism, that's C-R-E-D-O, which means a believer's baptism. Not P-A-E-D-O, which means infant baptism. The Lord's church has never embraced and believed in infant baptism or sprinkling, because baptism is for believers. How old do you have to be? Well, the Bible doesn't tell that, but you have to be old enough to be a believer. You cannot ask a three-month-old little baby, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? We do not believe in christening. We believe in biblical order, gospel baptism, credo baptism, a believer's baptism. The church. The Apostle Paul wrote to seven of them. Church at Rome, church at Corinth. Church at Galatia, church at Ephesus, church at Colossae, church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica. These were real churches, real bands of baptized believers, of various sizes. They were baptized believers who, when one joins the church and is baptized, he joins himself to the church. That word join means to glue, to stick. Acts 5 and 13, Acts 9 and 26, the word join is used twice there. We go to Acts 9, it speaks about how the Saul of Tarsus, after his experience of the Damascus Road, when he got to Jerusalem, he has saved to join himself to the disciples, which is the church. The word disciple means to be a pupil, a learner, a student. When the Lord gave the Gospel Commission in Matthew 28 and 19, he said, go and teach all nations, baptizing them. There's teaching and baptism. Teach them all, observe all things which I have commanded you. Lo, I go with you all the way even to the end of the world. The word teach all nations means make disciples. Not children of God. That's the work of the Spirit of God, the sovereignty of God, God himself. But the gospel in the church is here for the benefit and welfare of the Lord's children. Paul wrote nine letters to seven churches. Then the Apostle John writes in the book of Revelation... As God revealed in him some information to be given to the seven churches of Asia, seven literal churches. Now, one of the churches was Ephesus, which you have that Paul wrote to. So there's 13, at least 13 churches that are named and identified in scriptures. In the first chapter, in the first two verses of the book of Galatians, Paul writes to the churches, plural, of Galatia. 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Paul says, I've given orders to the churches, plural, of Galatia, even so do I unto you. From the first day of the week, let everyone lay aside as God has prospered him. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, we find where the Lord gives instructions to his disciples how to handle offenses. He said, if a brother is offended, he's to go to the brother who offended him or sister and tell him of the offense or transgression and work for reconciliation. If that's not successful, then you take one or two with you and do the same thing. If that's not successful, you tell it to somebody else. Guess who you tell it to? You tell it to the church. Second time the word church is used there, this time Matthew 18. And if you neglect to hear the church, 
the third time. Then let him be as a heathen and a publican unto the church, which means he's to be put out. He's to be withdrawn from, in other words. If you will not submit to the counsel and wisdom of the church, then he's to be withdrawn from. Yes, the church is something that's real. The church is something that's very important. So who should be a member of the church? Well, John the Baptist was baptizing people in Matthew chapter 3. He was down the river Jordan, and the Bible tells us he was where there was much water. It, it takes some degree of water to put somebody completely under the mercy. And, and I could, that, that would sprinkle a lot of people. But I couldn't get, I, I'm not going to baptize anybody in this glass. I don't see anybody out here this morning that's small enough for me to get down in that glass. I certainly can't get down into it. So I'm not going to try to baptize anybody in that, that glass there. I'm going to have to have something, you know, like the baptistry back here, where we both can go in there, and I can properly, biblically baptize them by immersion. John the Baptist is a certain place in Jordan's River where there was much water baptizing. They saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism. He asked them the question, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, old generation of vipers? That's what he called them. There were people actually coming to where John was, where John was baptizing, and they wanted to be baptized, but John says, you're a generation of vipers. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruit, meet for repentance. Simply an expression saying, I want to see some evidence that the Lord has worked a work in your heart. I want to see some repentance. John did not baptize everybody who came to him. He was selective. And the qualification given there was the fact that they should show forth fruit meat for repentance. They were coming, those he baptized, displaying that the Lord had done a work in their hearts and shown them that they were sinners. And they felt a great need of a Savior. And they felt unworthy of God's grace, His blessings, His love, His mercy. They came in humility, not in pride. In Acts chapter 8, you find where Philip is preaching the gospel to the eunuch. And we find where the Lord said, go and join thyself to the church. That's that word join again. Again, it means to glue, to stick. Like Romans 12, 9 says cleave. That comes from the same word as well. It means to join. It means to stick. It means to glue. It's the same word where the Lord Jesus Christ said, and Adam said this, and Paul said this. For this cause, let a man leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. This to glue unto his wife, to stick unto his wife. See, when you join... The church, the baptized believers, you should join with the idea that I'm going to stick with them. I'm going to be with you just like glue. Nothing's going to separate me from this wonderful band of baptized believers. And so that's the purpose, that's the idea. So when Philip gets there to the chariot, he asks Philip, Philip the eunuch, this question, understands what thy reason is, how can I except some man guide me? And he began immediately in Isaiah chapter 53 and preached unto Philip, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, that wonderful 53rd chapter. And when he got through preaching to him, he says, Here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He said, Thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the Bible says both he and Philip, Philip and the unit, went down into the water. He had to do that for proper immersion, for proper baptism. Went down into the water. And he baptized him. When he did, we find where the Spirit caught away Philip and the unit went on his way rejoicing. 
We see here the qualification of baptism was a belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. We now don't want to believe what Jesus, who Jesus Christ was, but also what Jesus Christ did. And it's important, if you go back early in Acts chapter 8, where Philip was preaching over there in Samaria and baptizing people, it says they came believing the things that Peter, excuse me, that Philip preached concerning the kingdom of God and the things concerning the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, but we want to believe the truth about what he did while he was on this earth. What he accomplished on Calvary. Because baptism is a theological statement. Baptism is a theological statement. It is stating that you believe that Jesus Christ is the total, complete Savior of sinners. He is your Savior. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. That you believe that God the Father loves you before the foundation of the world, before time ever began. And Jesus Christ laid down his life for you and died for you and paid your sin debt. The debt's been paid. It's been removed. And you believe in his death, burial, and resurrection and salvation being totally complete in that act. It's a theological statement. Baptism should line up with the doctrine that you embrace. Might say more about that a little later. If every member of the church was a member like me, what kind of church would we have? So you might get to thinking, well, you know, I never come on Sunday nights. So I guess if every member of the church was a member like me, we'd just do away with Sunday night service. There wouldn't be nobody there. They don't need Brother Lawrence to come and be completely empty pews. So I guess if every member of the church was a church member like me, we'd just shut down Sunday night service. And you know, I'm not that regular on Sunday morning. I guess if every member of the church was a member like me and I just knew what Sunday I wouldn't be there, we'd just call off church that Sunday morning. We don't need to meet because nobody would be there if there's a member like me. Romans 12.1 Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Hebrews 10.24 And considering one another... To provoke one another into love and good works. And he says then that we are not to forsake the sin of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Apparently in Paul's day, some of them were not in the habit of coming to church every Sunday. He says, forsake not the sin of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but rather exhort one another... Such more as the day approaches. So we are to try to encourage one another. And we do that in the right spirit, in the right way. And we do it by example. So when it comes to church attendance, if every member of the church was a church like me, what kind of church would we have? We just meet sporadically? Maybe once a month? Twice a month? Call off the Sunday night service? Never have a Wednesday night meeting? Maybe council the May meeting. If every member of the church was a member like me. What about, you know, having fellowship with the saints of God and staying for, for lunch? You know, that's not mandatory. 
But if every member of the church was a member like me, well, I'd never stay for lunch. So we might as well cancel that out. Won't have lunch at church anymore. Don't nobody be there to eat. Of course, be nobody there to bring anything to eat. What kind of church would we have if everybody was a member just like me? Church has work days where we can clean up outside and inside and all. And it has to, you know, I never attend that. I, I never participate. I just kind of think there are some mow angels and cleaning angels and dusting angels and, you know, those kind of angels. Gets it done. So I guess if every member of the church was a member like me, we don't need to have a work day because there's nobody there to work. What kind of church would we have if everybody was a member just like I am? And when the church has, you know, activities like a spring picnic and a fall picnic and things like that, I never attend those. So might as well not even plan on having any of that this year because nobody's going to be there if everybody's a member like me. church would we have? Everybody in the church was a member just like me. What about giving? Well, you know, I, I give when I'm there, just not there all the time. Or, you know, I give more, but, you know, the time I've, my week's ended, and I've gone out and ate so much, and I've had so much entertainment going on and this, that, and the other. And recreation, we come to the Lord's day, got to the Lord's church. Why, I didn't hardly have anything left. Of course, I know the bills got to be paid. I know there's electricity and phone bills and maintenance supplies. There's the need to support, you know, the pastor and the needy and the widows and, and different things. And I know all that, but I guess if everybody was a member of the church like me, we'd have to make some changes, all right. What, what, what does the Bible teach us about these things? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ apparently made this statement because the Apostle Paul told the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He said, remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So we understand that. It's a blessing in receiving and giving, but it's actually a greater blessing in giving than it is in receiving. Come to 1 Corinthians 16.1, and Paul again says, As I've given order to the church of Galatia, even so do I unto you upon the first day of the week. And every one of you lay aside in store as God has prospered you. How many first days of the week are there in a year? I believe there's 52, isn't it? 52 first days of the week. So we're well aren't so, you know, I'll, I'll do that when I'm there. Well, it didn't say, you know, upon the first day of the week if you're going to church. It says, on the first day of the week, we come to Proverbs 3 and 9, Honor the Lord with thy substance, and the first fruits of thine increase, that thy barns may be filled with plenty, and thy, wine, thy vineyards burst out with new wine. On the first day of the week. See, Christianity is, is to be taken seriously. It's to be done with purpose and planning and educating from the Word of God. So the first day of the week comes along and you lay aside. And if you're not able to be there, then take what you laid aside and add to what you... Give the following Sunday. Or give it to someone to take there. That's what we always do. So we come over here to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul says, 
He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. He that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. So let every man, as he so purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And as you've heard me state in the past, we have a mad giver and a sad giver and a cheerful giver in that text. As he's so purpose in his heart, that means he's given thought to this. He has prayed about this. He's trying to do this according to God's word. As God's word is direct him on the first day of the week, let him lay aside as God has prospered him. Let every one of you, the scripture says. So we lay aside on the first day of the week as we so purpose in our heart. Never will forget. This individual one time, it was pretty well known that he, he was pretty covetous. And he said, Brother Lawrence, he says, you know, the Bible says a man so purpose in his heart to so let him give. So if you don't purpose in your heart, you don't have to give. So, Brother, we add you to the prayer list. If that's the condition of your heart, you're sick. If you don't see what God did for you in giving his son, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son the very best that he had. Romans chapter 8. Paul said, if God, who spared not his own son, but delivered up for us all, how should we not also freely give us all things? Everything you are, what you've got, God has given it unto you. Your life, your health, your breath of life, your breathing, this very moment is a gift of God. Whatever gift you may have, God gave it to you. Your abilities, your talents, your intellect, whatever you may have, whatever you are, the sum total of it all, God gave it to you in the work of creation and his special providences. God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He didn't spare his own son. The Lamb of God without spot, without blemish. Oh, I'm telling you, when a man's thinking like, like that man's thinking, was thinking when I just told you about, he's in bad shape. Oh, as your purpose in your heart simply means that you've given thoughtful consideration to it. You have planned it. It becomes important enough that it comes off the top and not the bottom. It's in harmony with Matthew 6, 33. It says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. So every member of Bethel Church was a member like me. What kind of church would we have? Sometimes people say, well, you know, I have my own ministry. Uh, and, you know, the church is okay for those who like to do it that way. But i got my own ministry out here, and, and I think the Lord is directed and guiding me in this ministry out here. And, and, you know, I, I, this is just how I'd like to do it. I mean, I, I've had people tell me that. I didn't just dream that one up. They're totally ignoring what God did. They're saying, I found something just as good or better than what the Lord set up. You cannot practice serious Christianity outside the con context of the gospel church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul will tell husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How are you going to do that if you don't learn how Christ loved the church? Where in the world are you going to learn how Christ loved the church except in the gospel church? Under the sound of the gospel. God has so designed the gospel that God's people need spiritual nourishment and encouragement and strength that only comes through hearing the gospel. Doesn't come any other way. So, husband, how in the world are you going to know how to love your wife as Christ loved the church if you're not hearing the gospel preached on a regular basis how God gave his son for his bride who lived for a life for her she couldn't live, did a work she could not do, crossed the teeth, died in the eyes, died 
for her, rose for her, and someday he's going to come back and get her and take her into the portals of glory. And on the other hand, wives, how in the world are you going to learn how to reverence your husband if you're not in the house of God? Learning from a man of God, teaching you the word of God. But I'd kind of bear down on that Ephesians 5.25, Husband, love your wife, Christ, I love the church. But right down at the very bottom of that chapter says, And so let the wives so reverence their husbands. What in the world does that mean? You're going to learn all about that in the house of God. You're not going to learn, it, learn about it out here in the world, I'll tell you that. Out here in the world, you're going to learn things like this. I just fell out of love. Just don't love him like you used to. I don't know what it is, but I don't love him anymore. Or vice versa. That's right, straight out of the devil's handbook. Love's not something you turn on and turn off like a light switch or a key in ignition. Love is real and love has substance and love must grow. And there are things you can do to hinder it. There are things you can do to foster it, my friends, and, and improve on it. If you really love your wife, you'll try to do the best you can to love her as Christ loved the church and nourish her and cherish her. On the other hand, as a wife, if your husband is trying to do that, you'll support him, encourage him, and do the best you can to reverence him. And if you're having a few little difficulties and problems, which all marriage couples have, don't tell me otherwise. Because two sinners cannot live together without some disagreement from time to time. You can't even agree with your own self all the time, much less another sinner. Get two sinners together for a lifetime of living together in the same household, there's going to be differences. Like two cats in a sack sometimes. Well, the scriptures give us the answer to all of that. You learn about it in the house of God. So somebody says, well, you know, I got a friend. I'm going to go share these things with my friend. I know she's had marital problems of her own, and I know they've been separated and they're considering divorce, but I'm going to see if she can share some of her experiences with me. You better believe she will. They're not the kind of experiences you want to hear. Why don't you go visit somebody like Brother House and Sister Ann Brush who've been married for... 65 or so years. 67. There's the kind of marriage counseling you need. Go see Brother Lee and Sister Louise Smith over here. 50 plus. I believe, right? 58. Brother John says to Pauline Murphy. Go see people like that. Sit down with them and have a good conversation, two or three hour conversation about their marriage. And the things they've done along life's pathway to work together and stay together and unite together. So to somebody else out here is going through problems, go to somebody who's had success. Doesn't that make a little bit of sense? If I were going to do something, want to be successful, I'd try to find somebody who's been successful in what I want to do and go talk to them. Why don't I want to talk to a failure? Why in the world I want to talk to somebody that's been disastrous? I want to go and talk to somebody that's been successful. Somebody who has a proven track record. Somebody who's lived, as they say, when they got married to death, no part. 
So the word of God is going to give you that. The, the Lord's church is going to give you that. You're not going to get that outside the Lord's church. Some of the benefits of church membership, well, they're numerous. In Philippians chapter 1, and Paul says, I thank God for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. There's something wonderful about fellowship in God's people in the gospel, isn't it? Meeting together with the Lord's people like precious faith. Who have similar experiences to share. Like Elizabeth and Mary did when they were in the hill country. And Mary is carrying the Lord Jesus Christ and Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist. And they met for three months. Both had extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous experiences to tell and to share with each other. And every one of you that love the Lord have the same thing because you have experienced a miraculous experience in grace if you love the Lord. By nature, you do not love the Lord. If you love the Lord, it's because God has borne you the Spirit of God, put His divine nature within you, and had mercy on your soul. You know how wonderful it is to talk about the goodness of God, the greatness of God. Those are the things that will enhance unity, harmony, peace in the church. You have to be careful not to participate in gossip. What kind of church we have, every member of a church like me, because I like to hear about everything that's going on. And on top of that, I like to tell it as well. And I guess that's why everybody always comes to me, because they know I'm like a sponge. I can just take it all in, and they know I'll pass it all out. So I guess if everybody in the church is a member like me, boy, we hit and be soap operas every day. You put a screeching halt to that kind of stuff. When people come to you and they start saying so-and-so is a good fella, but you end the conversation right there because he's getting ready to tell you something you don't need to hear. Since so-and-so is mighty pleasant, I tell you, let me tell you a few things I've seen. Stop it right there. If everybody was a member of the church like me, I wonder how it would be because I get so easily offended. I'm just so thin-skinned and tender-hearted. It don't take anything at all to sidetrack me. It don't take anything at all to offend me. I guess everybody just be offended all the time. If every member of the church was a church member like me, which probably omit the singing because I don't get there to 5 to 11. You know, I guess one hymn would be all we need. If every member of the church was a church like me, what kind of church would we have? What kind of church would we have? In the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, he starts off with the Apostle Paul saying, If there be any consolation in Christ, if there be any comfort of love, if there be any vows of mercies, he says... Then fulfill ye my joy. Now that word if sometimes is used as a condition. Sometimes it's just simply used to express something that's given knowledge. For example, if I was to say, well, if water satisfies your thirst, I'm not questioning the fact whether it does or not. I know it does, and you know it does. And so if water satisfies your thirst, then eating will satisfy your hunger, maybe. That's the way that word if is used there. He's not saying there might not be consolation in Christ, there might not be comfort of love, there might not be bowels and mercies in the church. He's simply telling you since there is. Since in the church there's consolation in Christ, comfort of love, and bowels and mercies in the Lord's church, then fulfill you my joy, and be ye like-minded of one accord of the same mind. Privileges and responsibilities go hand in hand together. 
A lot of people want privileges with no responsibility. One of the benefits of the gospel church and being part of it is the fact, indeed there is consolation in Christ, indeed there is comfort of love, indeed there are vows of mercies, and therefore we all have responsibility, every single individual one of us, to be a peacemaker and to work hard for unity and harmony and peace in the gospel church. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It's a characteristic of a child of God to desire peace and labor for peace and work for peace. It's not just my responsibility, it's not responsibility of just this person, that responsibility of every single member of the church. Let's turn to look at Ephesians chapter 4 just for a moment. Here's some great benefits in the church you'd never receive on the outside of the church. Beginning in verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, and edifying the body of Christ. God gave these gifts. Where are the gifts at? They're in the church. If they're in the church and you're outside the church, you can't get the benefit of these gifts. What are the gifts for? For the perfecting of the saints. That is, maturity of the saints. For the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ, which means spiritual growth. The Apostle Peter closed out his second letter by saying, Grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. How can you do that outside the church? You cannot do it. God designed for you to grow in grace and knowledge of the, church, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church under the sound of the gospel when the word of God is being read and studied and meditated on and rightly divided and being blessed with the Spirit of God to preach it. That's how you grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. It's in the gospel church that we experience reproof, rebuke, and correction. You say, well, I don't like any of that. It's for your welfare. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, preach the word of God. Timothy preached the word, visit in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Second Timothy three sixteen, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Notice this, scriptures are profitable. Are you giving you some illustrations how it's profitable? What's it profitable for, Paul? It's profitable doctrine. That is for teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. In other words, the scriptures will teach you what is right. It's proper doctrine for reproof to teach you what is not right. For correction to teach you how to get right. And construction and right to teach you how to stay right. You know why some people don't stay right? Because they're not in the church. You know, for something to come out right, you got to think, you got to do right. And to do right, you got to think right. And to think right, you got to be taught right. It all goes together. You got to be taught right so you can think right, so you can do right, so it comes out right. But I said, I just don't understand why nothing's going right. And they're not saying it's going left. They're saying it's going wrong. I just don't understand why everything's going wrong. Nothing's going right. Because you're not doing right. You're not doing right because you're not thinking right. You're not thinking right because you're not being taught right. And you have to be taught right at home and in the gospel church. Yes, the word of God will teach you what is right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Ephesians 4. For the perfecting of the saints, the work of the mission, edifying the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, of the perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Here's the benefits of the gospel church. Here's the benefits of those gifts of the gospel church. It's that you might come to a unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect, that is a mature man, unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. 
So many of the Lord's people are being carried away by every wind of doctrine because they are not benefiting from the gifts of the church. They're not there on a consistent basis, not there on a regular basis. They're not there to hear the gospel, their salvation being proclaimed. They're not there being delivered by the gospel, which will bring a deliverance and salvation into your life. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Paul says, And I declare unto you the gospel, wherein you receive, wherein you stand, whereby you shall be saved, if you keep in memory what I preach to you. How in the world can you keep it in memory if you're not there to hear it preached? You've got to be there to hear it preached, to keep it in memory, to have a saving influence in the way that you think. And when you're rooted and grounded so that you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, when the Da Vinci Code comes along, it will not trip you up. When the gospel of Judas, that just makes me sick. Just the word gospel means good news and glad tidings. There's no good news and glad tidings about Judas Iscariot, I'll tell you that now. Be no more children tossed to and fro. By every wind of doctrine. Some people out here, just they just take everything no matter what direction it comes from. By every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness. Here's where this verse applies to this Da Vinci Code stuff. Cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the, the effectual workings and the measure of every part, making increase of the body to edifying itself in love. Now I'm just going to tell you exactly what that verse is saying. This body, your body, has got many members. I consider every member of this body important. Every single one of them. I try to give attention and care to every part of the body. Why? Because I consider part of my body is very important. Every part of this body, blood circulates through and carries things from one part of the body to the other part of the body. In the gospel church, and the apostle Paul uses this analogy several times in the church to the letter, uh, uh, to the letter to the Roman church and also to the Corinthian church and here in the Ephesian church. Now that every part of the body is important and supplies the needs of all the other parts of the body. That's why all those one another texts in the Bible are so important. And we'll wrap this up and conclude that with a thought on that statement right there. I'd encourage you to get your concordance and study the one another text in the Bible. John 13, 32. The Lord Jesus Christ said, But this shall now all men know that you are my disciples, you have love one to another. Love one to another. Not selective love. Unconditional love one to another. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, But bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You can't do that outside the setting of the gospel church. You've got to have enough inter interaction with the membership to know who's got burdens and what those burdens are. You can't just depend on the announcement from the pulpit. I come to Colossians 3.12, Put on therefore as the elect of God, vows of mercy, Honest of mind, meekness, lowliness, humility, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel with another, even as God has forgiven you for Christ's sake. Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens. And we come back over here to Hebrews 10, 24, and consider one another, and provoke one another into love and good works. Encouraging one another, edifying one another, exhorting one another. So much more you see the day approaching. 
Can't do that outside the baptized body of believers. Got to be baptized. Got to be baptized as body of believers, so you can participate in all these wonderful practical instructions found in God's Word that will benefit you and edify you, be proper you in your life, and not in your life and the lives of other people. When you unite with the church, you're saying you're making a profession of faith. And you're saying, I believe that I am a sinner. I believe that God loved me before the time ever began. I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. If I have uh, no I have no salvation outside of Jesus Christ, He's my Lord, He's my King, He's my Savior. I believe He's paid my sin debt. I see myself as an unworthy, wretched creature, unworthy, wretched uh, sinner. But I believe that Jesus Christ took care of that. I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior, sinner, and the Savior of my soul. And because of that, I want to join myself unto those who've gone before me, making their professions of faith. I want to name the name of Christ. Second Timothy 2.19, the apostle says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And that every one of you that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's what you're doing. You're naming the name of Christ. You're taking his name upon you. You're taking the bloodstained flag of King Emmanuel. And you're holding it high above for everybody to see. And you want to tell others what great things the Lord has done for you. That's what it's all about. That's taking up your cross. That's making your profession of faith. And you're saying, I want to do all I can to share with you God's people what little bit I've got. Whatever gift I've got. Whatever ability I've got. Whatever talent I've got. I want, to, I want to put it out there. I want, to, I want to participate. I want to share. I want to enjoy the fellowship of the saints of God. I want to honor my Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ the very best of my God-given ability. I want to be in Gideon's army. I don't want to be the third, the um, the ten, the, the twenty-two thousand that went back because of fear. I don't want to be among the 9,700 that drank water in the wrong way. I want to be among the 300 that went out with Gideon as a leader and they came back victorious because they carried out the plan of God. I want to be among the 120 disciples there that Jesus had when he left this world after a three-year ministry. After three years of living in this world here, being rejected and despised of men, amount of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When the Lord went back to glory, there's about 120 disciples left. Where's everybody else at? Where's all the multitude of thousands that fed by the, the loaves and the fishes? Where are the many that were blind who can now see? And the lame that can now walk and the deaf and that can hear? And those who were dead, they're raised back to life again. Where are they all at? Thank God for 120. I don't want to be the nine of those lepers that went the other way after they were cleansed of leprosy. The Lord cleansed ten and nine went away. Finally one turned back and gave God the glory. kind of church would Bethel be if every member of the church was a member like me?